So we're continuing with eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series. Uh, Emily, see me afterwards because I'm hoping that I can get through this today in such a way that it'll just be a do-over and we'll pull, pull down the one from last week. In which case, we'll use the first letter and the first number here. So uh, simultaneously, we're doing a new baptizing the Holy Spirit, longer version. We're calling it a 2017 version, although it's going to spill into 2018. And uh, chapter 14, B7 of this is, uh, we're looking at, uh, in section C, we're looking at imparting and receiving the Holy Spirit. And we're trying to make clear that these are things that will quench the Spirit corporately and individually. These are things that will grieve the Spirit corporately and individually. These are things that uh, will hinder you from having a flow of God's presence about you and from being able to walk by the Spirit. And if you read Galatians 5 carefully or Romans 8 carefully, hopefully you can understand that the Christian life cannot be lived except by the power of the Spirit of God. It's it's utterly impossible to the natural man to bring forth any fruit of Christ-likeness. You cannot do this by trying harder. Uh, So you must do this by humbling ourselves, stepping through the cross, uh, through self-denial, through confession of sin, through repentance, uh, through renunciation, and living on the, on the other side of the cross, so to speak, in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ by the power of Pentecost, by the power of his outpoured spirit. That's the only way this Christian life can make any sense or be lived at all. So our eight essential elements are listed in Roman numeral one. We're on step seven, and we're uh, at letter P. So we've been on step seven for a long time, the first five steps of entering the kingdom. Roman numeral two lists those steps. This series is on step three, baptizing the Holy Spirit. On August 20th, we started doing uh, five common hindrances or obstacles, again, to the Holy Spirit's presence, to getting baptized to the Holy Spirit, pretty much anything that has to do with the Holy Spirit. These five things that are listed in Roman numeral four there are obstacles. And now we are on Roman numeral four, number four, unforgiveness and bitterness. Okay. So uh, at the bottom of the first page, it says unforgiveness and bitterness banishes the blessing and brings bondage, curse, and chastisement. So let's talk about what this means. If you read Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, which if you study the structure of covenants in the Bible, All covenants have eight elements, and those elements include um, that there are celebrations of enactment and celebrations of renewal. And um, in celebrations of renewal and enactment, there's always a reading of the covenant, including the laws of the covenant, the, the requirements of the covenant, and there are sanctions for obedience. There is a realm in the Christian life called the blessing of God. And uh, when you're a pastor, you kind of look for that in people you're working with. Uh, It it includes things like an increasing countenance of God's presence that's in the person's life. Uh, You can see, uh, if uh, if you have discernment of spirits, you can see the the demonic starting to go and the the presence and power and clarity and cleanness of the Holy Spirit coming. Uh, that affects other areas of life. It doesn't bring you into a place where there's no temptations or testings or difficulties 
or no one in your family ever gets cancer or, or anything like that. But it does kind of lead you into a place where you zero in on the call of God on your life. You're blessed in various ways in your marriage and your children and your uh, vocation and there's financial aspects to it and, and so forth. And you, uh, you can kind of discern when the favor of God is resting on someone and growing. And you can discern when uh, God's uh, chastisement is on him. Because as a father, he deals with us covenantally. And he chastises every son he receives. To not be disciplined by God is to be rejected. Even in the natural family, if you, if you hated your children, you would not discipline them. If you love your children, you love, like uh, I, I really liked when I read The Problem of Pain with, uh, by C.S. Lewis, and he talks a lot in that book about how love always has requirements. Like if you love someone, you can't just let them meander into terrible character. You know, there's an old saying that the path of least resistance makes both rivers and people crooked. So... Uh, you can't, if you love people, you have to require it. If your single brother's living in a house, uh, you have standards for each other. Not nitpicky, not legalistic, but you do call one another into greater zeal for the Lord, into greater obedience. Uh, the, the Bible tells us to not forsake our own assembling together, but to draw together even more, lest anybody be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and to consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds and so forth. How do we stir one another up into the blessings of God? So there really is a realm that I would call the blessing. And there's a realm of chastisement. And what happens is uh, sometimes, uh, hopefully when you're first a Christian, you begin to have experiences with the presence of God where you sense his, his uh, blood washing you from your sins. Uh, sometimes, if you were uh, oh, deeply convicted enough of your sin, uh, that might involve tears and, and brokenness and, and a great sense of, of cleansing, catharsis, and so forth. Uh, I remember several experiences like that at the beginning of my Christian life and from time to time thereafter. There's also times where you're aware that God is using circumstances in your life to chastise you. And unfortunately, what happens today is some people get into a place where they're in the chastisement uh, sort of atmosphere of, of things for so long, they become uh, used to it, and that becomes normative to a family or to uh, an individual. Uh, it can become normative to a, even a company or a church. You know, like we could, uh, there's lots of churches where there, it's been sort of dying gradually for maybe decades even, sometimes even a century or more, and it's just, that's what we do around here. We're just getting old and dying, <laughs> and uh, we, we don't uh, bring young people to Christ. We don't disciple the next generation of leaders. We don't, uh, we don't have a sense of ongoing vision and excitement about God's purposes and presence. We just do the same old, same old because that's what we, I don't know, that's what we grew up doing. And you can un sometimes have so much financial distraughtment or, 
or other types of God's chastisement resting on you, that it actually becomes sort of the, you're, you, you just think it's the, that's what life is. And that's a most sad state of affairs. Usually when people are in that sort of state of affairs, they can, you need someone else to help you recognize it. It's one of the reasons we need the body of Christ, accountability, spiritual authority. You need someone to say, hey, wait a minute. God has something much better for you. And, uh, and someone who hopefully can not only point that out, but can uh, at least partially take you there. All right, so with regard to this whole concept of unforgiveness or, or chastisement, 1 Thessalonians 5.19 tells us not to quench the spirit. So, reading the reverse negative, we can do things that quench the spirit. We can do things that draw the spirit. Uh, Ephesians 4.30 tells us not to grieve the spirit. And in the Septuagint, that's the same word that God uses in Genesis 6, just before he calls Noah to start building an ark, when he looked down from heaven and saw... Uh, that the sons of men were wicked and violent all the time, and he was grieved in his heart that he had made man. And you can actually carry yourself in such a way. You can be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You can have had many wonderful experiences in the presence of God, but you can be living in such a way that the Spirit of God is grieved. That could happen to be with the way you treat your wife or the way you're uh, raising your children or the way you'd go about doing your business at your work. Uh, you, know, you know, many Christians uh, steal from their employers by not being good workers. I actually have had men in my years in, in the business world and so forth tell me I don't like to hire Christians. I've actually had Christian men tell me I don't like to hire Christians because they're always thinking about heavenly things when they're supposed to be out making sales <laughs> or whatever. And uh, flipping burgers or whatever. They're talking about theologies of eschatology and, and the burgers are getting burned, <laughs> you know. So, um, and, you know, such a work ethic is stealing. All right, so let's turn over and let's look at some pertinent scriptures. Of course, Matthew 6, 12 and 15 at the top there tells us to uh, forgive others our, their debts so that we can be forgiven. Um, Matthew 18 uh, is, the, is, of course, the account of the uh, wicked man who uh, owed his master like $10 million and asked for forgiveness. And then uh, when, he, then when uh, he met his fellow servant who owed him a day's wages, he wouldn't forgive him. And that Jesus purposely tells that uh, uh, account to help us get some perspective because there's a deceitfulness of sin, and there's a way that sin hardens its heart so that we underestimate what kind of sinners we were. So Jesus is trying to open our eyes to see, like, our debt to God was something more in the range of, like, $10 million. And I don't know if you ever tried to save money, but to save money, I, I used to make a pretty good income when I was in the business world. And if you made, uh, oh, 120000 a year, and you were raising some kids, and you were pretty frugal and diligent and stuff, you probably wouldn't be able to save $10 million in your whole life unless you did very well on some lucky investments or something. But uh, you probably wouldn't be able to save that. You wouldn't be able to save that in your whole life, really. I mean, to be able to save, uh, 
it would be like if you're a really good saver, you might be able to save about like 20,000 a year, 500,000 every five years, uh, you know, a million in 50 years. So if you started when you're 25, you might be able to save a million dollars by the time you're 75, which means uh, you might be able to save like 10 million by the time you're 425. <laughs> At that rate. Well, assuming you, of course, hopefully you do better with your investments over time and so forth, compound interest. Maybe you could get there by the time you're 300. That's sort of the point. <laughs> Jesus is saying, like, what we owed to God could never be paid. And then we have the audacity to turn around and have unforgiveness towards someone who just killed our brother or, you know, murdered everyone in our village, which in comparison to what we did with God is like a day's wage. That's kind of the whole point of this thing. So if you notice, uh, jumping down to the second verse there, uh, he says that his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the tortures. Nothing will open you up to demonic bondage more than beginning to develop and nurse a grudge in, in uh, evil thoughts towards someone and judgmental thoughts and negativity and so forth. Uh, sometimes, you know, like when I work with marriages, the first thing I try to get each of the people to do is quit looking at the other one's sins and problems and look at their own. Until I can get them to start focusing on their own sin, there's no hope to help the marriage. None. As long as it's she did this and he did this. The woman whom thou hast given me, by the way, she, <laughs> it's really your fault in the first place, God. Why'd you come up with this crazy marriage idea? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, as long as you're still in that posture, I can't help you. No, no one can help you. God can't help you. And you'll be handed over to the tortures. Now, that, so understand that God deals with us covenantally, and every covenant has sanctions, again, blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, and God sometimes is chastising you through the circumstances of your life to try to get your attention. But sometimes you can get to a point where you've been there so long, you just think that's the normal way to live. Like I'm half depressed all the time and, you know, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. You can even begin to expect things, low expectations of success, all all kind of things. What uh, plays into the whole thing we talk about when we uh, work with bringing people out of the culture of poverty, the major characteristics of the culture of poverty. That is when you have gotten into a realm of the chastisement so much, you're you're you're, you're live a lifestyle of living there, and you think it's normal. Now, go up to the top verse. If you're presenting your altar at the, you're presenting your altar, you're offering at the altar, and remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering, therefore, before the altar, and first be reconciled to your brother. Now, if we had time to read the whole portion of Matthew 18, you would notice this. In one case, the person has sinned against you, and you're to go. In the other case, you've sinned against the person, and you're to go. So there is never at any time any reason not to be talking through your problems with the people that you are in covenant with, both in your church and in your family. 
Now, whether you're to go with people in the world, we'll talk about that's not always wise because they're not always walking to the same lordship as we are. So sometimes the most you can hope for, you are also, of course, if the person has died and gone on to their eternal reward, that's why you get you know, all these famous scenes where someone goes to the person's grave and forgives them or something symbolically kind of goes to the grave and says, you know, I forgive you for this and that and the other thing. So, um, but, what, you know, unforgiveness uh, is a thing that you need to understand. Uh, time does nothing for this. People always say time heals all wounds. It does not. You must actively, uh, ex- you know, um, reiterate what the sin is. And you must actively uh, cancel the debt. And we're going to look at that as, as we go here this morning. Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. Don't grieve the Spirit of God by which you were sealed for the day of uh, redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you and all malice. Wouldn't that be great if we lived that way? If that in this body there was no bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, or slander. I just want to tell you about you know, Sydney, so we can pray about it. <laughs> Malice is uh, evil intent. I sure hope they get theirs. Sure hope God gets them for what they did to me. That's Malice. Hebrews 12, 14 through 17, verse 15. Uh, whenever I put a little bit more, I'm suggesting that you go take, take this outline and go back and read the greater portion. You'll get more out of it. See to it that no one, that means every single person, has an obligation to make sure that no root of bitterness springs up and, be it, and by it many be defiled. If, any, if anyone ever has a root of bitterness, that person who has the root of bitterness is at fault for having the root of bitterness. He's saying, see to it that this never happens in the body of Christ. This never happens in a family. This shouldn't even happen in a place of business. Ideally, if our businesses were under the lordship of Christ. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So isn't that pretty much Paul saying the same thing as Jesus said? Forgive us our debts as we forgive the debts of others, right? And if you get Matthew 18, you understand that what God has forgiven us is much greater than what any human being is possible of doing to us. Revelation 12, 9 through 10, some of this material is different than last week. I changed and updated, improved the outline. Uh, I used to do a four-part series on Revelation 12. Now, there's five different uh, uh, views of how to interpret Revelation, and I subscribe to two of them. One is, 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 I do not subscribe to the modern futurist view. I subscribe to it, it was uh, to a preterist view that it all had to do with the persecution of Nero and so forth. But I also subscribe to an eternal now kind of thing where this, this is happening always. The things in Revelation are always happening in a, in because God lives in the eternal now. The only place we can fellowship God, we can't fellowship God in our past, we can't fellowship God, and you know a lot of a lot of young Christians will kind of uh, delay and and compromise with sin or procrastinate because I'll get to it later. There's no making up 
for the loss of the present in the Christian life. Only what you are with God at this moment is what you are. If you're procrastinating, what you are is in sin right now. <laughs> That's what you are. <laughs> you're procrastinating when God wants you to be doing your math or whatever. Or if you're saying, I can't, which means you won't. That you never, it's never a matter of whether you can or can't. So, Revelation 12, if you think of it from an eternal point of view, always there's a male child coming forth whose destiny is to rule the nations. And she's... And the male child is always coming out of the woman, the church, our mother. And uh, the, the accuser of the brethren is always trying to stop the male child from coming forth. Every next generation of God's purpose faces the things of Revelation 12 today. Today, Satan is trying to keep this church from getting spiritual momentum and getting off the ground and getting birthed. Today... He's trying to keep you from birthing new things in your walk with Christ and moving forward and, and moving into a realm where uh, a little more of his resurrection life is your normal everyday life, where you're seated at the Father's right hand in heavenly places, and that's where you're living your life from. Today, he's trying to prevent that from being normal and reality to you. Do we, hopefully we get that, Okay. So the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient, the ancient serpent who was called the devil, which means slanderer, by the way, and Satan, the deceiver. He does two things. He slanders, he deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, not later, eternal now, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. Primarily, Satan opposes God's authority. In Christ, in the scriptures, in the Holy Spirit, and in the church, and particularly the leadership God raises up in his church. The authority of his Christ has come, and the, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before God. Now, the passages I have listed there in Job and Zechariah both talk about how Satan came before the presence of God to accuse. Twice in the, at the start of Job and then Zechariah, he comes before the throne of God to accuse the priest, Zechariah. That's his ministry. In fact, those are the only mentions of Satan in the Old Testament. In, both, in three mentions of Satan in the Old Testament, and all three of them, he's coming before God to accuse the people of God and what God is presently doing through the people of God and to tear down God's authority in the earth. To the degree that God is raising up things to use in your life, that's why there's an attack always against the scriptures. Anybody ever heard of evolution or higher criticism or any, you know, we, we covered all that stuff. And if you come to the Tuesday night Bible study at Wright State last year in detail, because the, the authority of the scriptures is always being opposed. All right, so uh, keep in mind, you know, if you're a wife, God's going to accuse your husband to you all the time. If you're a husband, God's going to accuse your wife to you all the time. Your pastor, your boss. Single brothers, you're going to get you're going to have to fight accusations against the other single brothers in your house popping into your head all the time. And the way you're going to have to fight them is not just to try harder. You're going to have to go 
get it talked out, get it clarified, get on the right page with one another, and get it clean, crisp, clear, present, and dealt with. So we're going to get into that in a minute. All right, 1 Timothy 5.19, do not, do not, do not. Those are will or won't verses, not can or can't words. One of the things that, uh, you know, a lot of people right now are reading our, a book called Competent to Counsel. Uh, that book will help you get out of the, you know, you hear so many people say all the time, I cannot, I can't. I, and it's never I cannot. It's I will not. It's never you can't. So, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. None. This applies to your family. This applies to our church. This applies to everything that needs to stand together in your life. Unforgiveness and bitterness is the source of all, of all broken relationships. Now, point B there, I'm listing the book Total Forgiveness Experience, a study guide to repairing relationships, which I've been uh, reading the last several weeks. Um, chapters 3 and 4, I would point to your attention. Chapter 3 is what forgiveness is not, and chapter 4 is what forgiveness is. We're going to talk a little bit about that for a minute here. So um, today, even a lot of Christians have what I have always called humanistic forgiveness. And humanistic forgiveness um, tries to bring the ideas of modern psychology in that, you know, the reason this person did this is because his mother bit him when he was five and he had a bad childhood and uh, there were, you know, there were hurts in his life and so forth. And so you try to make the basis of your forgiving the person uh, sympathy and empathy with them. And you try to kind of say what they did wasn't sinful, or you try to make excuses for it or justify it, but you can't do that. And he deals with it in chapter 3 a lot deeper than I'm going to go into it here. I, I just want to give you the general direction. You can't uh, make excuses, blame, shift, or rationalize for yourself or for other people. You know, you're, you know, I can't uh, go back and say, well, you know, I had a wonderful mom and dad, so this example doesn't apply. But if I had an alcoholic dad who beat me up and stuff like that, I can't go back and say, well, you know, his dad was harsh. And he, you know, that's all well and good. But that didn't change God's commandments in his life. And that doesn't make an excuse for why he behaved the way he did. So what you have to do is you have to call it what it is. He was violent, he was selfish, he was an addict, whatever he was. He was abusive. And if you try to understand and so forth, you're not getting going the right direction. What you need to do is, is call things what they are in reality and truth. And then you need to say, I'm not going to hold it to their account and tear up the IOU. That's very different. What forgiveness is, is tearing up the IOU. You know, think of forgiveness as a business deal. You know, 
couple years ago, we like to joke about Daniel Williams and I and some of the other bad drivers like Josiah that get, get in accidents around here, starting a driving school together. What's, Teresa was going to get involved the other day. The four of us were talking about the accidents we've been in over the years, so we said, we'll start a driving school together. And, uh, you know, Daniel Williams wrecked my car at one point, and so uh, we figured out what it would happen if we did his insurance, my insurance, and so forth, and we worked out a deal. Like, I said, well, I'll fix the car at my expense, but just so you do something, uh, you come over and clean my car one time and detail it on the inside and so forth, which he did in the spring. You know, so, and then it's done. Now, was it equitable? It doesn't matter. It's, if you decide to make it equitable, it's equitable. So you go, you know, you broke the window, I, I forgive you, and I'll pay for it to be fixed. Hopefully, if you break someone's window, first thing you do is say, well, I'll fix that for you. But they have the right to say, no, that's okay. I forgive you. And if they do, guess what? That doesn't fix the window. So what forgiveness understands is somebody's going to fix the window, and that's going to cost time and money. There's a cost. But in forgiveness, you choose to absorb the cost. You don't, you know, it doesn't excuse that they beat you or they stole from you or whatever. You're just deciding to cancel the debt. Now, that is in the realm of decision. Sometimes, especially if you have harbored hurt and unforgiveness and bitterness, you may have to make that decision stick for a while until your emotions line up with your decision. Okay, I am uh, 61 years old now. I first started thinking about forgiveness when I became a Christian at age 17. That's uh, 44 years. And uh, I have never heard a teaching on this subject when the first thing I think, don't think of is my mother. My mother did many good things for me. She was a wonderful Christian. And she was the source of great pain in my life as well. And so I have forgave her 44 years ago, but I still work on making sure my emotions line up with that all the time. By the next thing, after you decide to cancel the debt, you need to begin to pray that God will not hold it to their account, that he'll bless them, and not that he'll bless them once they get theirs or something like that, but just, uh, you know, like I, my dad died a couple of years ago, but after I read the just actually, I only had read the preface of Total Forgiveness Solution, and I, you know, I kind of upped my efforts to make sure I prayed for them every day, very kind, uh, gentle, <laughs> blessing kind of prayers. Like, Lord, increase their sense of your joy in your presence. Increase the peace in their relationship. Increase the, the, the as they, especially as they get older and get ready to go into your presence, Increase the manifest presence they have in your life so the idea of crossing over into your presence becomes less and less scary to them. It's one thing I learned one night when I was face, thought I was going to die was that God will get, grant you grace by, uh, by increasing his presence to help you make that transition. He actually will come to you as you're going to be going to him. And uh, often he will even bring back people you've known that, were, that are Christians and so forth to welcome you. Um, so 
make sure you go beyond tearing up the IOU and actually start to pray until uh, there's such a work of grace in your life toward the person that the very thing that comes out of your spirit is tenderness, mercy, forbearance, kindness, uh, the opposite of malice and ill will. You know, I uh, had someone who did great harm to me once in my life that uh, a lot of pe people in several churches that we had planted and so forth were very aware of this situation. And I uh, prayed for that person as I drove to work for, uh, for 40 minutes every morning for five years. And one day, I was called into my boss's office, and my boss and some other employees began to tell me that this person had run into great trouble in their life. While I had been praying for them that God would be merciful to them and not hold it to his account and so forth, and uh, the one guy, I won't say who he was, uh, after telling me all the trouble that had come upon this guy, I, he said, I'll bet something in you is going, yeah. And I said, are you kidding me? You know, I said, you know, a man of God has fallen. He's lost his ministry. His, his ministry and churches have been hurt. And you think that I would be happy about something? That, that's, you don't even know me. And I walked out of his office. You know, uh, some years later, I was called into a meeting that the same man had got into worse trouble. And I had to excuse myself from the meeting because I was bawling so hard because I had prayed for so many years for him to be blessed that nothing but tenderness and love and, and good hopes for him had, was in my spirit. I hope you hear that. That's where you have to get to toward anyone that you, that you need to forgive. That's where you have to get to. To where if God uh, came into their life, forgave their sins, and, and, and did all the wonderful things he did for us, and didn't hold anything to their account, you'd be happy. You wouldn't be like, man, couldn't you have just made them suffer a little on the way? <laughs> you know? Uh, don't do, don't have that in your heart. <laughs> I hope everybody gets that point. That's probably one of the most important points I'm making this morning. You've got to do that for everyone in your life that if you think of them, it's painful. <laughs> Rapid fire machine gun. All right. Now, when you go and when you don't go, that has to do... Uh, you know, there's a balance of power in every relationship, and that has to go, that has to go with uh, whether or not God wants to save that relationship. So you've got to ask, uh, get some counsel sometimes, especially if you're a younger Christian. Not every relationship should be saved. There's definitely relationships, in fact, that you probably need to get away from, especially when you're a young Christian and coming out of the world and so forth. But the last thing is get it done. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. That's what the next verses say, in fact. Today is the day of salvation. Don't, uh, now, should you go and get counsel from someone like an elder or your, or your home group leader or something like that? 
only if you've tried to talk to the person and you haven't been able to get it resolved. I've had situations where someone came and said, well, I'm trying to talk to the person, but they won't talk about it. Well, then we might get a couple of the elders to get together and say, come on, let's help you talk about this. You guys got to get it worked out. But don't let something, I, I uh, have had, just in the last year, I've had people come to me with grievances that they've had for seven years or more that are in our church. I was offended seven years ago, <laughs> and I've been thinking about it for seven years. And here we were as elders scratching our head why this person's so troubled spiritually and why we can't help them get moving forward. Well, there's the answer. <laughs> you will never be in the right place with the Lord if you're nursing grievances and so forth. And if you go and you don't come back, like when you walk away the next day, say, do I think this is completely resolved? If not, try again. Try two or three times. If you can't get it to a place of resolve, uh, if it's a family, get the parents involved. If it's a church, get the elders involved or somebody in authority in the church, elder in training or something. Because you have to win the relationship. You, it's never important to win the point or win the argument, it, it, or seldom is. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians, why not rather be wronged? You know, we'll think, oh, it's important that this one gets, you know, because there's a few thousand dollars involved. Why not rather lose a few thousand dollars to have the relationship right? Is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. You don't have to be right about the points, but you do have to be right with the person. And again, especially if it's a, a person of spiritual authority in your life, a boss, a parent, an elder in the church, or something like that. All right, so let's uh, use the remaining three to eight minutes to uh, do point D, some very critical concepts. Un unforgiveness and bitterness are life and death issues. Life and death issues. I'd, in some ways be just as worried for you if you came in and told me you had bitterness as if you came in and told me you'd have cancer. And in both cases, I'd want you to right away start taking the immediate right steps. Uh, my wife, Deanna, some of the people close to me know I'm going through a thing right now where one of my, my dearest friends uh, is very sick with cancer and it, it's, it's not looking good. And it was, and partly it's because he got diagnosed early enough and did all the wrong things. You know, he tried to do some homeopathic stuff and stuff that was a very wrong decision. And he's not that kind of guy, so that was sort of surprised everyone. Most, none of us knew that he was doing that. But by the time everyone else knew, the cancer had spread to the rest of his body. You know, you, you have to deal with bitterness and unforgiveness right away. You cannot let it spread. And you've got to, and if there's a surgery needs to be done, a surgery needs to be done. But today is the day of salvation. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let this thing grow and, and develop. So understand life and death. Proverbs 18.21 says life and death are in the power of the tongue. Because here's what will happen. 
it's like squeezing a balloon. If you squeeze a balloon at one place, it must pop out at the other place. If you don't deal with it correctly, you, one of two things will happen. You will internalize it, and you'll start to get spiritual and physical illness. You'll get demonic things, and you'll get arthritis, uh, whatever, cancer. There are, there are actual physical ailments that will start to happen in your body, ulcers, things like that. Or you will tell someone else, but not the right person. You know, two brothers living together, and they don't talk to each other about it, but they will talk to the other guys in the household about it. This is a very famous thing that happens with married men. Married men will, you know, I'll be out uh, hanging out with Stephen and John Gray, and John Gray will hurt my feelings or something. Then I go home and tell my wife. Then she has an offense against John Gray and her spirit. And then John Gray and I get it worked out two days later. And then a week later, I say, hey, I'm going to go hang out with John Gray and Stephen. You're, you're going to hang out with that bum? <laughs> you know, she still got the offense in her spirit because I gave it to her. That happens all the time in the body of Christ. Roots of bitterness cause many people to be defiled. Uh, what really, so first, understand these four points here. This is very important in close. Don't, don't miss these. You are always harsh in judgments in the areas that you're guilty in. If you find yourself harsh in judgment, it's because you have the problem. It's always 100% the case. If you're quick to say this person is whatever you are putting on them, it's, and you don't have grace for that in your heart, that's because that's your problem, not usually theirs. It's called the boomerang principle. That's why there is a law of reciprocity. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall find mercy. In the measure you give, it will be given unto you. And how you judge others will be how you are judged. Because you always judge without grace in areas that you have not encountered the grace of God in. If you, especially if you have a little self-righteousness about it. You always find people who are self-righteous are the hardest, harshest judges. Secondly, it is crucial, critical, it's a matter of life and death to stop a carrier. Uh, I was looking for some old material on evil reports, but there's, this, there's an idea uh, called an evil report. And here, especially what happens, you know, God brings people to this church, but guess what? God allows the enemy to bring people to this church that are somewhat of a test for us. And sometimes people will come with all sorts of, uh, in this, you know, God's sovereignty, he allows this. It's part of our sanctification and part of what he's doing. But he brings people, uh, the enemy brings people that God has allowed that uh, get a bad, that aren't really right with God. They get a bad attitude and so forth, and they start being divisive and so forth. And he, uh, what happens is anyone who has an evil report in them who's not dealing with it biblically and correctly, is always feeling out others to see if they're receptive. I was trying to look for some teachings by this guy named Bill Gothard that uh, we uh, had some stuff about this that we used to study back in the 70s. But um, 
and I just ordered the book yesterday for $1.48. Because <laughs> uh, uh, the Burks had a workbook of it, but not the actual book. But anyway, um, really, this is what happens. Like, people will kind of feel out, like, I wonder if Sydney's going to be receptive to me talking about, you know, Josiah or Jonathan or Robbie about, you know, how they cheated me out of the last couple pieces of pizza. And, you know, like, you, you know, whatever. It's usually something more serious than that, of course. <laughs> that would not be serious to me. But uh, <laughs> I've had plenty of pizza. I have my credentials right here. Uh, so understand that particularly happens with people who are newer and aren't in the right place with God or the church. And they'll be like, I just want to tell you about, and it'll especially happen, uh, you know, Jane, you need to know this for Equip um, for Life. Some new member will, you know, have some negativity or whatever, and they're not quite right with the goals of the group and everything, and then they'll, they'll not talk to you or Cindy about it, they'll talk to someone else about it. Don't let a carrier even start to give you their report. This is something I'm proud of certain people in our church. I've, I've actually been around certain people in our church when someone started trying to do this, and I've watched them go, have you talked to that person? Don't tell me about it. I don't, I don't want to hear it. Don't even tell me about it. Do the proper thing of going to talk to that person about it and so forth. That leads into the next point. Is it your sphere of authority or responsibility to be listening to this person? Has someone made you their pastor? Paul tells us not to be busybodies in 2 Thessalonians 3.1, and the Greek for that is don't be self-appointed shepherds. That's what it actually means. Don't appoint yourself as a shepherd. And you have to especially watch out for this for people who are newer, who aren't, you know, fully on board with Christ. Remember that a lot of what this series is about, a lot of what we teach about here, there are a lot of false conversions and partial conversions and so forth out there. And a lot of people start, and, and our goal is to walk them into a place, sometimes it takes one, two, or three years, but walk them into a place with the gospel where they really are right with God. But they don't often start there. And often people have been around a couple of years and they're still not doing what God wants them to do. You know, sometimes we even know as elders, well, we gave this brother a directive to do this and that and this with his relationship or this or that. And we know he's not doing it, but we're, we know that God will chastise him for it and he'll, it'll pay. And he's, eventually God's going to get his attention and we just have to wait. That's the last point. Re look for, learn to recognize the chastisement of the Lord in your life. Again, as we started at the, at the beginning of this teaching, we talked a lot about how people will be in a realm of not the blessing of the Lord, but more in the chastisement of the Lord. And sometimes people will be in that blessing or that lack of blessing for so long that it will become normal. That's why we have what we call the five C's of leadership, the caller before the calling, character before charisma, and then finally chosen. When, when somebody walks through the blessing of God to the point where God's, where they've gone to a certain point of blessing, fruit starts to come on their life. Because you can't bear fruit, and I can't bear fruit. 
I love people like Chris Like. When Chris Like and I first started hanging out, we hung out for two years, I knew that God was doing stuff in his life, and I knew it was all beyond my capabilities, and I was just along for the ride. And God was going to do wonderful things. Isn't that great? Like, that's the best place to walk with people in. Like, God's, like, you understand that God's doing some good stuff in this person's life. He's called you to be a part of it. And, you know, we're kind of like midwives where we hope to catch, oops, missed. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and we do our best to walk with them through it. And, and we know it's beyond all our, you know, abilities to do anything about it. That's the blessing of God. That's fruit. So this is probably uh, the most important thing I've taught in a long time. Honestly, we, if you remember last January, both John and I had a sense that we were coming into a time of visitation of the Lord. And uh, we kind of wound that down a little bit during the summer, remodeling. And, uh, you know, frankly, we haven't been able to get that ramped up as much this fall as I'd like to see. And honestly, I think that's because there's way too much of that, this in our body. So look at yourself with this. Uh, do what needs to be done. Get your relationships right. Walk current, clean, current. Don't have stuff that you're letting build up that you haven't dealt with in a proper way. Don't have accusations against elders in your heart. Don't have unresolved conflicts. Get it, get it done. Get it clean, crisp, clear, and right with the Lord. Amen. Let's come back as quick as we can for the next meeting.